Welcome, one and all. It's another Kaufman Show on TSN 690. Dave Kaufman here with you. John Kakalakis joining me tonight. Jimmy G on the board. Lots to get to. Not a lot of time. We were preempted by the uh, by the rain in Minnesota, John. It was uh, coming down hard and fast and led to a pretty uneventful, unexciting home run derby, if I do say so myself. Especially in the finals or semifinals. Somehow I expected Todd Frazier. Poor dude. Going up against Ioannis Cespedes. Well, he, at that point, you're only going up against yourself, though, John. And, uh, well, he really didn't deliver. What was it? One home run in the, or two home runs in the last two rounds. So uh, let's bring in our first guest tonight. He is a fan of the, uh, of the Oakland A's, the team that won the home run derby tonight. That doesn't give them home advantage in the World Series, though, unfortunately. We'll have to wait for tomorrow for that one. But uh, he is an MLB super fan. He was represented in the MLB fan cave currently working for the Oakland Athletics. Ben Christensen. Hey, Ben. Hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, not much. How are you? I've been great. How about you? Very well, very well. Did we uh, rouse you from your slumber during the Derby, or were you able to stay awake because there was an A in it? Oh, there was definitely an A in it, so of course i got to be, you know, on on the edge of the couch, you know, ready to, <laughs> to, to win us a championship for you and us for the second year in a row. Yeah, and, and you saw him with his belt and his, uh, and his trophy at the end there looking like a wrestler. <laughs> Yeah, that's how we do it here, you know. I think at least like five or six of our players have, you know, WWE belts in some form. And it was very classy of Adam Jones to give up his EONS for uh, taking the title. Well, there you go. Instead of putting a bird on it. Uh, ben, I want to mm-hmm. not spend too much time talking about this derby because, frankly, I, I found it very uneventful. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of the new format, and I'd rather spend the few minutes we have talking about your Oakland A's. Of course. What a great team. What an exciting ball club to watch this year and... It just must be so much fun to be in Oakland and watching this team uh, be the toast of the class of baseball. And from from my perspective, um, you know, I'm one of the lucky few that actually gets to watch it kind of from field level, you know, with, with the job that I have. But more importantly, I mean, I look back at my youthful years, and I you know, was fortunate enough to witness the 88, 89, and 90 World Series teams. Luckily, we won it in 89. But with the performance that we put up in the first half, I mean, with a, a, a franchise record 59 wins before the All-Star break, I mean, even though you could talk to any casual baseball fan and they may not be able to name at least, you know, six players on a team, this could turn out to be one of the greatest A teams in franchise history. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, right up there with the, uh, I guess, the late 80s teams for your, uh, for your excitement, mm-hmm. your nostalgic purposes, right? Yeah. It's been a it's been a really exciting year, and and knowing that that team is, well, they're they're reminiscent of the team that we had here. It's a team that, like you said, where that a lot not a lot of people can name all the players. Uh, the starting pitching, as incredible as it is, is pretty much a bunch of guys that people don't know or whose names they can't pronounce. <laughs> but, but, and that's only since they traded for Samarja. But it's been yeah, exactly. It just must be so much fun this season, and I mean. You're lucky. You've been rewarded with an excellent team year after year after year. Why is this year? Why does this year feel different? I think that everybody is kind of feeling it. Like the last two years was just the essence of you know really hard work kind of paying off. And even though in 2012, I mean, we literally squeaked in to to the Western Division title. Last year, not so much. You know, we had a strong surge in the second half, which you know seems to be a theme for A's baseball. Right. But this year, it's just everybody's going out there. They're contributing. If it's not with the bat, it's within the field. If it's not there, it's definitely with the pitching, whether it's from the starting rotation or even the bullpen. And just, you know, the mentality is we're not satisfied unless we win this thing. 
and that feeling has not really been felt, I mean, literally since the, the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, maybe even 2001 when we won 102 games and, you know, we, we got bounced by the Yankees in the first round. But um, it's, it's really coming together, and just the overall feeling in Oakland is just, you know, this is it. This is, this is our time, finally. Finishing up with uh, Ben Christensen, you can follow him on Twitter at Shaka Brody. Ben, I want to get your thoughts on, um, well, the news that came out last week of the Oakland City Councilor basically bringing up Montreal and San Antonio as viable options for the A's to move. How did you feel when you heard that? You know, I was kind of sad by it. I mean, the fact that this, this kind of runaround has been going on for the last decade, you know, we had the, the whole essence of, you know, we're, oh, we're going to build a stadium in Fremont, and then that collapsed, and then there was the possibility of the team going to Portland, um, not to bring up bad memories, but, I mean, the, that kind of happened post um, when the Expos were potentially going to move there. And then there was the whole San Jose thing that kind of started in 2011, 2012, with Lou Wolf wanting to move the team out there because he owns so much property out there. Right. And... And what's even more unusual with, you know, the, the bickering back and forth between the ownership and the city council, et cetera, you know, there, there's been this, you know, 10-offer deal that we're supposedly going to have, and, you know, it's been signed, and now other things are coming out, and it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And now that we have other cities in the mix, you know, with San Antonio and Montreal, personally, if it's Montreal, you know, it would suck, but it would be nice to see you guys get a team back. And so I'll be I'll be a bit of a diplomat about that one. Well, I appreciate that. Not so much because they have two teams <laughs> in Texas that don't really draw crowds. So it's like, why would that even be a viable option? But you um, know, Ben, you've been down this road before. Uh, you've seen Portland get yeah. mentioned into the uh, into the mix always, and and just because they say Montreal doesn't mean that they're actually thinking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Portland even came up again earlier this year, and which which I felt was kind of odd because. Um, now they have a short-season single-A team, the Hillsborough Hops, that started last year. They're getting a huge following, so it's like, all right, at least you know there's some kind of revival within baseball that's going on there. But we're talking about a city that's had multiple AAA teams come through, yeah. not draw a crowd, and they all left town. So why would a major league team suddenly be you know the answer to this this baseball calling? Finally, Ben, last question for you: How many uh, wins did the A's finish the season with? Oh, why just ask me that? <laughs> um, I I kind of looked at it and I feel like we can get at least 103. Oh wow! Okay, and, oh, we, got, we got like 70 left. And I think with the amount of losses we have, it, it's it's a pretty fair amount. What do you think would take to win the division? Uh, the Angels going on a hard slide. Okay, okay. So you uh, think and, the Angels are going to be right? As much as A's fans want to talk about, oh, the Giants are our enemy. My biggest concern right now is the Angels and possibly even the Mariners because they took two out of three from us this last series. Uh, right before the All Star break, and but the Angels have just been hot. I think what eighteen out of eighteen wins in the last twenty two games. Well, Ben, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough fight, and uh, well, we're rooting for you. It's an exciting ball club, and uh, like I said before, it reminds me at least of the Expos. And uh, well, go A's, Ben. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Have a great night. There he goes, Ben Christensen. Follow him on Twitter at Shaka Brody. Be back with John Kakalakis, James Foster, and Robin Flynn's going to join us by phone. You guys read that ridiculous Margaret Wente article in the Globe this weekend? We'll talk about that. Get your popcorn ready. Welcome back. It's the Kaufman Show on TSN 690. 
Toasters? Toasters? All right, let's talk popcorn. Let's bring in TSN 690's Robin Flynn. You can also hear her every day on CJAD. And uh, I think Robin and I had a similar reaction to a column in the Globe and Mail this weekend. Kind of made me wish there had been a strike after all at the Globe. Hey, Robin. Hey, Dave. How's it going? I'm well. How are you? I can't complain. Thanks for staying up late. No problem. We appreciate it. It's, uh, well, why don't you tell uh, our audience about uh, about Margaret Wente's affinity for popcorn and hatred of the Dutch? <sighs> it's amazing how she managed to offend men, women, and the Dutch all in one column. <laughs> it's truly mind-boggling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and popcorn. I like that you brought up popcorn. <laughs> well, it's a very important part of it. The only thing she didn't knock was Gone with the Wind, really. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> indirectly. Uh, indirectly, right. She indirectly didn't knock a, an old racist movie. So there you go. <laughs> Good for her, Margaret Wente. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you generally try to avoid everything that woman writes just because it's usually dribble and it's usually offensive and I usually disagree with a lot of it, but it, it was kind of hard to avoid this one when it was getting retweeted into my timeline relentlessly. I wish there was a way I could block her from my Twitter feed permanently. Um, you know she's not on Twitter though, eh, Robin? It's it's too no, much of a guy thing for her. I know, but somehow her stuff still gets tweeted into my timeline. It's kind of like how I've made the decision to avoid watching Coach's Corner just because I didn't see the point anymore in getting myself riled up over the things Don Cherry had to say, so I don't watch anymore. That's clever. I feel like I, I need to make that decision about Margaret Wente. I need to just not read what she writes. <laughs> well, I, I wish I had the same power as you, but the same thing when somebody tweets uh, something, puts it out there on Twitter, and it's Saturday morning, and you're getting ready to start your day, and you're going to read. Uh, again, it's, it's like, well, you have to read this because you have to be a part of the conversation. But there was a, a column by uh, Globe and Mail's national columnist, Margaret Wente, where she basically argues that sports are not for women. Yeah, and uh, as somebody who is a woman and loves sports, not only loves them, has decided to make a career out of it, that's, um, I would say, a little offensive. Just a little. I, I, and again, it's it's the way that she does it makes it seem like it's just setting back the movement. And maybe she thinks this and that's fine, but what on earth is the Globe and Mail thinking? And and they have female sports writers there. You think about, uh, was it Shauna Richer that, that covered Sidney Crosby for a year for the Globe and Mail? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are female sports reporters. Not as many as I would like, admittedly, but I mean, it's still a new concept. It's only been in the last 20 years or so that women have really branched out into uh, sports reporting in, in general. But, I mean, they exist, and not even just sports reporters, just sports fans. I have so many female sports friends that, you know, are extremely knowledgeable and passionate, and they don't necessarily do it for a living, but they love sports, and I don't think it has anything to do with your genitalia, you know? If you love sports, you love sports. And it's not even the fact that she says, you know, that women can't be sports fans. She really makes it sound like they can't be sports fans because they don't understand. Right. They're just too darn ditzy and pink-wearing bimbos who belong in the kitchen making popcorn for their man while he watches the big game to you know, really understand the intricacies of sport and why it's so exciting. And I think that's the most offensive part is you know, the lack of empathy in something that you know, so many people enjoy. I mean, you don't, it doesn't even have to be about sports. You know, if it is, you know, between your partner and you and something that they enjoy, I would think that you would make an effort to understand what it is they're passionate about. Maybe it's not what 
your cup of tea is necessarily, but I mean that the concept that women are just too dumb to understand sports, that's what really, really bothers me. We're in conversation with TSN 690's Robin Flynn. You can follow her on Twitter at Lady Habs. I'm going to read a couple of pieces from this, uh, Robin. I hope you don't mind. Go for it. What is it that turns sport, about sports that can turn the most sober, solid men into crazed fanatics? Whatever it is, I'm envious. Sport gives men access to an intensity of experience that leaves most women simply baffled. We are relegated to the sidelines. Our job is to make the popcorn. I can't say I'm bitter about that, because even though I enjoy rooting for the home team, I just don't care that much. And then if we skip ahead, men get as emotional about their teams as I get watching Gone with the Wind. When the Canadian hockey team beat Russia back in 1972, I thought it was, well, very nice. Men thought it was the greatest moment since the end of the Second World War. The gritty little guys had kicked the communist robot juggernaut's ass. To this day, they can all remember exactly when and where they were when it happened. Now, Robin, I find this so interesting. Just contrast it with all the views of all the cities throughout the world during the World Cup. Yeah, and it, I mean, all the images that we saw of World Cup fans, I would say the fan bases were 50-50 splits of males and females. I mean, it, it wasn't extremely male-dominated. No, far from it. And... Uh, It just seems so irresponsible to also just completely ignore sport in general. Like, and she is offending men by this too. Yeah, yeah. By saying that it's it's so frivolous and oh, good for them that they can get so excited about that and that's wonderful. But I mean, I mean, some of my greatest memories, if I had to like rank my favorite moments in my life, involved sporting events, and they're not even necessarily about the sporting events themselves, but the people that you're with. And I feel like that's a part of being a sports fan that she totally misses out on that whole, you know, growing up watching hockey with your dad or being at a bar with your friends when the Habs eliminate the Bruins in game seven, or, you know, the, the sort of social aspect that comes along with being a sports fan is probably a big chunk of why she isn't a sports fan. Cause I'm assuming she doesn't really have many friends. Because if she was one of my friends and was talking like that, I don't think I'd be wanting to hang out with her all that much. She's too busy making popcorn, Robin. Ugh, make me some popcorn while I'm watching my sports then, Margaret. You know, she, she quotes Bill Simmons at the end, and she talks. Uh, he's talking about the uh, the feeling of watching your team blow a big game. It's devastating. It's paralyzing. It's the only the feeling that a 6-year-old, a 42-year-old, and a 64-year-old can share exactly. But nowhere in there does Simmons say, man. No, she totally misses the person. boat on this. Yeah, she totally misses the boat on this. And it's uh, very frustrating to see as a sports fan and as somebody who understands that sports is a mirror for our society and can be a vehicle for social change and look the way she can set it back, you know? We've got the Women's World Cup coming to this country next year. It's going to be huge. It's going to be across the country. People are going to be watching it. And I think it's going to get just as much excitement in Canada as the World Cup did this year. Yeah, and that's something that I I have to say I'm so excited about is just seeing women's athletics sort of taking – the front burner for the first time in my lifetime that I can recall seeing people wake up early on a Saturday morning to watch Eugenie Bouchard at Wimbledon and rooting for her and to see the Canada U S final at the Olympics in Sochi was one of the greatest hockey games I've ever watched in my entire life. Men, women, NHL, international, any level that was so exciting. It was so much fun. I still remember I was, I was working at CJD in master control during that game, there were engineering guys in there, and I was jumping up and down when the ladies tied it up, freaking out. And it was one of the greatest moments of sporting memory that I've ever had. And I'm excited to have the Women's World Cup in this country and have people sort of rooting for women because there are so many awesome female athletes 
And I would love to see them get the same sort of opportunities and paychecks that guys get. Um, and maybe we're headed that way. And I think by having women cover sports and by having women speak out and say, hey, I like sports, I'm a sports fan, I'm not ashamed, maybe we'll, you'll have more girls that will say, hey, I can do this because, you know, we sort of aspire to what we think we can be and you need role models to aspire to be an athlete. You need to see somebody you can look up to like a Christine Sinclair or a Eugenie Bouchard. Right, and we see that with Bouchard right now. Tennis uh, memberships across the country are skyrocketing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's amazing for sport, not just for tennis, but and for the women's movement. And it's something I struggle with a lot, Dave, is, you know, I want to be a really good reporter and I want to be a really good member of the media, and I struggle a little bit with, I don't want to be known as, you know, the feminist sports reporter, but it's almost like you have to. You have to take a stand. You can't sit back when people are, you know, calling you out for being, oh, what's it like being one of the only girls that works in sports media? And, you know, I, I'm like, it's, you know, no different than any other job where there's a lot of guys. I think media in general is a very male-dominated field, which is unfortunate, and hopefully that's changing. But I don't want to be the person that always has to take a stand, but I feel like I'm in a position where I have to. Well, you have a bunch of people backing you and, and understanding that, that what you're doing is the right thing. And, uh, you know, and I, I would imagine that, like you said, the times are, are sort of changing slowly, and I would hope that the Malibu Stacys of the world get weeded out. Yeah, and you know what? There's not even anything wrong with being a Malibu Stacy. If you're somebody that doesn't like sports, that's cool, man. Sure, Everybody but, I don't mean, but not right. if you're covering it. No, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I take an issue with also the sideline reporter gig, how you always have sort of that beautiful blonde woman who's the sideline reporter, and very rarely do you have the woman hosting the panel in studio. Yeah, and well, that's an issue, that and we, we see that with Hockey Night in Canada, all the guys sitting, and then let's go over to Legs with Andy Petrillo for an update. And, yeah, and, and they that's zoom in from the ass up. I don't remember them ever doing that with Elliot Friedman when he was on the iDesk. In fact, I think he actually had a desk he sat behind. Oh, that would be really weird if they did the, uh, the pan up. And again, and that just, you know, the fact that I would find it weird that they would do the pan up on Elliot and not on Andy Petrillo. But it's it's just it's blaring. It's there, Robin. And uh, you know the the only thing you said the, that I'll, that I will take somewhat umbrage. Uh, like Erin Andrews is really good at her job. Oh, absolutely. And I feel but, like she gets she gets called out a lot because she's pretty and she's blonde. But we saw the way she handled Sherman last year in the uh, the conference finals. I thought I thought she did a very good job. I think she's very good at her job. Yeah. Oh, and I totally agree with you. I just I feel like it's a little unfortunate that the sideline reporter is like the, has the to be highest pretty. level. Yeah, it has to be pretty. Absolutely. You know, you're never going to see an overweight woman on television. Maybe a sports reporter who's overweight is going to be relegated to radio and she has no hope in hell of ever making it on TV. You have to, I mean, maybe that's true of men too, to be honest. Maybe I'm sort of just looking from a female perspective, but I mean, it definitely is looks based and I would say it's more so with women. And I wonder, because the female sports reporter is a relatively new concept, what's it going to be like in 15, 20 years? Like, you know, you've got these guys like Bob McKenzie who have been in this business forever and are respected. I mean, are you going to have Kate Burness who's still doing this when she's in her 50s? I don't know. Or is she going to be replaced by somebody younger? Well, I think you know the answer to that, don't you? I do, and it makes me sad. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully Kate Burness, I don't know, uh, ages well and is able to keep her career for a long time. But <laughs> you see how it works. I mean, we've all seen it with much music, except the cutoff's like 21 instead of 36. 
Yeah, do they even still have DJs on Much Music, or do they just play, you know, reruns of Gossip Girl all day? I don't I don't want to get into Bell Media woes, but I think they were all fired last week, to be honest with you. Uh, unfortunate. Robin, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed chatting tonight. Thank you, Dave. It was a, an honor to have you on The Kaufman Show. Oh, goodness. Thank you. It was an honor to be on it. Follow her on Twitter at Lady Habs. The Kaufman Show continues next with Torben Rolfson. Jimmy, we can go straight to break. Don't you worry about it. Welcome back. It's the Kaufman Show on TSN 690. Dave Kaufman here tonight with John Kakalakis. Joining us now, James Foster in studio. You can hear James all the time on CJD. He is the producer of The Exchange on Friday nights. We have fun. I'm not the producer. I'm You're not the technical gonna, producer. I'm not going to take credit away You're from the te- Sarah. You're right. You are the technical producer yes. of The Kaufman Show. I of, sit there and I hit a button every once in a while. Of The Kaufman Show on CJD as well as The Exchange. You can hear that Friday nights from 7 to 10. Bringing us in there, that was uh, The Arkells. Hamilton, Ontario's finest. And uh, August 5th, the new album High Noon comes out. Get it. You're going to love it. Trust me. Might have gotten an advanced copy. I'm pretty excited about that. Let's bring in our next guest. It is Torben Rolfson, resident comic on The Kaufman Show. Joins us every Monday night from Vancouver. Hello, Torben. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great. How are you? Doing well. You're actually not joining us from Vancouver, right? Yeah, I'm on Vancouver Island tonight. Ah, okay, cool. Close enough. Absolutely. Much closer than we are. What's going on, man? Well, Oscar talk is building for Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Brazil's player really wants to see it now that the World Cup is over. (laughs) And bad news from Brazil's team doctors. Neymar may never flop again. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Did you see where a teenage boy broke into Cristiano Ronaldo's hotel room? Apparently there was a ring of hair gel thieves working the World Cup. What? (laughs) Take some L'Oreal on back to the favelas. <laughs> 7-1. What a whopping. I think Augustus Gloop could have scored for Germany. Hi-oh. <laughs> some Brazilian fans blamed Mick Jagger for the team's humiliating defeat. They said he had developed a reputation as a bad luck charm for any team he supports. Jagger laughed off the charges, adding he's looking forward to New York Knicks training camp opening. <laughs> And there were reports North Korea's state-controlled media said they made the World Cup final. Sure, and LeBron James is joining their basketball team. (laughs) Oh, the NBA free agent coverage, wasn't that insane? Which part? The oversaturation of the whole LeBron thing. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, frankly, I kind of expected it. He's he's LeBron. Uh, And what does he do when it's finally over? He hops on a plane and goes to the World Cup. Yeah, it's awesome. It's like Kanye West jumping on stage at the MTV Awards. Germany, Argentina, I'm going to let you finish. (laughs) Imagine he made the announcement there. Yeah. That would have been something. That would have been amazing. On Copacabana Beach. That's right, for an audience of a million. The post-LeBron decision, uh, the post-LeBron decision programming black hole at ESPN threatens to swallow small galaxies. <laughs> That's for sure. And LeBron says his time in Florida was like going to college for him. That would make him the first athlete in Miami to last four years in college. <laughs> to graduate. That's right. And the Heat-LeBron meeting Wednesday when it all fell apart in Vegas, it ended when neither party would pay for another lap dance. Aww. That's when Lee Jenkins from SI stepped in, footed the bill, and got the scoop. 
Yeah, and speaking of Vegas, I noticed Johnny Manziel's been spending more time there than Celine Dion. <laughs> you saw that picture that came out? No, I missed that one. There was a uh, a picture of Manziel that was on um, on Deadspin.com where uh, it, he was in a bathroom and all you could see in the picture was a rolled up dollar bill, a rolled up uh, a U.S. bill. Wow. And they just kind of just left it there at that. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yep. Um, the courting of these basketball free agents, teams were photoshopping the players into their own uniforms, like 14-year-old high school football recruiting. The Lakers guy, he has such mad Photoshop skills, he made a poster that looks like Carmelo's making a pass. <laughs> NBA free agency, the month Drake's wardrobe budget quadruples. I bet. <laughs> You see where Drake says he'll be at Cavs games this season and may purchase property in Cleveland. But first that. things first, it's off to Germany to celebrate. <laughs> I wonder who his favorite WNBA team is. Yeah, I don't know. We should find out. <laughs> and speaking of music, uh, the Wells Fargo Center crowd, is, crowd has been nominated for a special Grammy Award for its booing of Gary Bettman. Nice. I haven't heard a note sustained that long since I saw a World Cup goal scored on Univision. <laughs> And as photos are circulated, they're showing that sparse crowd at Rogers Center just before the Argos Stamps kick off Saturday. I guess Calgary fans don't travel well while Stampede is on. No, of course not. There are and animals the to of, abuse. Uh, <laughs> with the trade of Jeff Samarja to the A's, it looks like the Cubs are beginning another 100-year rebuilding project. <laughs> it's the too Cubs sad the, to laugh. <laughs> the Cubs think about the future more than Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> nice Torben. <laughs> Minnesota's Target Field is ready. They got a ton of peanuts. I got a list here: five thousand orders of chicken fingers, a thousand pounds of ground beef, twelve hundred steak sandwiches, fifteen hundred orders of French fries, and four thousand nachos. What an all-star game for Prince Field! <laughs> it was that or Babe Ruth's coming back from the dead. I didn't know which way. Uh, TNT viewers—they were upset when Daytona's Coke Zero Four Hundred aired instead of a scheduled Lord of the Rings marathon. So instead of inebriated hairy trolls fighting over shiny objects, they had to watch NASCAR. <laughs> Torben Rolfson, amazing stuff, man. Thanks so much. Hey, have a great night, Montreal. Follow him on Twitter at VanGuy. That's Torben Rolfson. Jimmy, how do you want to do this now? You want to do an update or should I just set up what's going on for the rest of the show? Oh, set up what's going on for the rest of the show. Okay, so we're going to replay a couple of uh, really cool interviews that I got to do over the last couple of weeks that you may not have heard because they were not on this show at this time. In the first interview... I jinx the Toronto Blue Jays. That's right. When I spoke with Alex Anthopoulos, they were hanging by a thread to first place, and I jinxed the Toronto Blue Jays. We'll see when I get another interview with Alex Anthopoulos. That's why we pay you the big bucks, Dave. Following that, we are going to uh, re-air an interview that I did on July the 4th on CJD on the Exchange with John Thorne, who is the official historian for Major League Baseball. He's one of the stars of the Ken Burns series. It was very exciting to speak with him. And we talked about Lou Gehrig and his luckiest man alive speech. It was the 75th anniversary of the day we spoke, but still relevant today and will always be Lou Gehrig, one of the greats. And that's that. James, you, you excited? You ready? You happy? I'm stoked. I see you're partying with Drake wearing your Germany jersey. Yeah, man. I'm super stoked about that one. And I, I know John. He's mad at me because Costa Rica beat Greece. No, it's part of the game. Somebody's got to win. And Greece has got to lose. lose. Somebody's got to win, and it's always Germany. No, actually. Germany they hadn't won in 24 years. It's, it's, it's good because, you know what, uh, they've had their chances in the past few international tournaments, and 
This team was too good. They had to win. Congratulations to them. Well deserved. It was it was their first win as a united country. It was West Germany that won the other three. Yippee. I'm just saying. I'm pretty happy. The the Bavarian in me is thrilled. As right as now. somebody thrilled. who has no German in me whatsoever, I'm pretty stoked. Okay. As someone whose grandmother was from Munich, I don't give a damn that Germany won the World Cup. My Dan- team is Canada. I am Canadian. Dan Delmore had the best post-Germany win tweet. What did he say? Uh, he said, all of this talk about Germany's uh, like precision world domination and stuff like that is really making him nervous. Oh, God. Well, I'm not quite there as the... Uh, it was really good. As, as the uh, revered Lenny, Lenny Leonard says, that's why pencils have erasers. Don't worry. They still have enough to buy the Cleveland Browns. They're going to be fine. <laughs> John, thank you very much. Does, does anybody thank really you, want Dave. to buy the Browns? James, like, <laughs> thank honest, you very honestly, much. Honestly, does anybody really want to buy the Browns? <laughs> Jimmy G, thank you, sir. Like, If somebody offered them to you right now, would you buy the Browns? Come on. Only honestly. If, only if I could trade them for a baseball team. <laughs> I think I could find some some oligarch, some Russian oligarch, or like a you know chic... Uh, a sheik from Qatar, Cutter, Cutter. I wouldn't be surprised if you could easily trade the Browns for I don't know the Rays maybe, and then move the Rays up here. All right, I think you could pull that off. We'll leave the A's for Ben Christensen. Our thanks to Ben. Our thanks to Robin Flynn, and thank you to all. Enjoy our interview coming up next with Alex Anthopoulos and then MLB historian John Thorne. Welcome back to the Montreal Forum on TSN 690. Dave Kaufman filling in for Tony, and our guest right now is the general manager of the first place Toronto Blue Jays. Alex Anthopoulos, how does that sound? Uh, it sounds good, but I, at the same time, I, I don't even like uh, putting that in front of our um, in front of uh, the name, just because it's only really we finally played our 80 first game, and it's. Uh, I'd like to say the first place through 81 games, Toronto Blue Jays would probably be a little better. Funny, a friend of mine uh, from Toronto, one of my my close friends and a huge Jays fan who I live vicariously through this season, he was having a similar conversation with his dad where his dad was freaking out and he finally said to him, Dad, would you rather be three games up or three games down right now? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a really uh, interesting way to put it. I just, you know, there's just, I've just, uh, maybe just you have been scarred a little bit just from past years. Whether it was 2009 when I was here, and I was in AGM, and I know it was middle of May, so it's, we're obviously well beyond that point. But we were 27 and 13. We had the best record in baseball at the time, and then we proceeded to have the third worst record in baseball. And, um, and Scott Rowland got traded. There was the holiday rumors, all that type of stuff. And I think I mentioned this the other day. I think the Pirates in 2012 were 16 games over 500 at the trade deadline, and they ended up finishing with 79 wins. So. You know, as as much as some teams have underachieved or overachieved in the first half, and you see it with players all the time, you get to the second half of the season, it's amazing how many things can change. So, you know, we really, I know it's a complete cliche, and um, but it is so true, especially for us, to not get ahead of ourselves, to not start looking ahead, you know, series and so on, and, and really worry about just the game we have that night, and it's just so important to try to just keep winning games. I think that's an important mindset to have no matter what point in the season you are. Even the, the Seattle Mariners that won 115 games, they, they got knocked out in the first round. you got to play every game like it's, like it's the last game. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, it's been so long since we've played meaningful games in September. I mean, we had um, one year when I was an assistant GM, we went into Boston, I think right at the beginning of September, 
and I think we had Halliday and Burnett on three days rest, and, and we just we didn't come away with any wins, and that basically that was the end of it. But we really, at least in the years I've been here, and that's December 2003, uh, we haven't had meaningful games in September. And look, the goal is obviously to win the World Series, but you know there's obviously there's a there's a path that that comes before that, and the first thing is try to get to September, be playing meaningful games, and then beyond that, try to get into the playoffs. And then obviously once you're in, try to win the World Series. So you know, I don't think you know, we want to win, but at the same time, I think our thought is just continue to try to win. I don't scoreboard watch. I don't look at the standings. Um, you know, the only thing I look at is um, how many games over 500 we are, and I know that that's incredibly important just because we're going to have stretches like we've had this month where we may lose five in a row. We may lose ten in a row. You know, you don't want it to happen, but there's another 81 games left, and those things will happen, and hopefully we win another ten in a row as well. So um, you just really have to try to stay even keel. Talking baseball with Jays GM Alex Anthopoulos on the Montreal Forum, Dave Kaufman and Alex Anthopoulos. You mentioned Roy Halladay a little bit earlier, Alex. I wonder, when Halladay was being uh, bandied around to be traded, was there any way that you would have traded them within your division? And the reason I ask is basically how much would it take for you to get David Price? You know, um, I remember at the time, again, I wasn't the GM and um, when all that started. And I remember the Red Sox had an interest in him, like a lot of other clubs. I know Tampa Bay had interest in him back then, uh, the Dodgers, the Marlins. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I actually at the time uh, was keeping pretty meticulous notes on what the offers were, and I would date them and see how they would change and evolve. And you know, that actually helped me a little bit when I got to the offseason. I ended up being the, the GM now. Halliday uh, was much more um, strict with his no trade clause in the offseason. It sounded like. That summer of 2009, you know, he was much more open to going to a contending team. Um, but, uh, look, I, I think uh, the attitude was, look, we're open to moving him in the division, and you know, I can't speak about players on other teams, you know, currently, but I think most GMs, their attitude is, we're open to it, but push come to shove um, is ha- going to have to be pretty significant. It's just not a comfortable feeling when, you know, you move someone in your division, you have to come back and see them very often and all that kind of stuff. So, I don't know that – I mean, there are some GMs that just will not do it, that won't engage. I can say that with the holiday stuff, and I'm not speaking for J.P. Ricciardi, but I know his mindset was it better be a significantly better package to move Ray Halliday in the division, especially because we knew if he went to a big market like New York or Boston, there was a high probability that he was going to be extended. Right. And now you're one and a half years that you thought you were going to see him there. You're probably looking at five or six years, and that's – would be hard, hard to do. Well, it would be one thing for Tampa to have to face David Price for the next year or two in a Blue Jays uniform. It would be a different story if the Blue Jays had to face Aaron Sanchez in a Tampa uniform for the next six or seven. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, again, not um, getting specific about any of those players, but I think it is safe to say if we're trading young prospects within the, in the division, um, yeah, I mean, that certainly can be painful and uh, not something you take lightly. But, again, you do have to um, look at your own circumstance and, you know, your, your responsibility to the ball cup, to, to the players, things like that. But on both sides, I think making trades in division, there, there's a reason it's very rare, and it's that much more rare when you're talking about elite-level prospects, elite-level players. Um, so as much as people may want to you know, start trade rumors and speculate and so on, I would say that there's, it's just that much more – it's just a whole other layer. And there could be layers from an ownership standpoint on both sides. There could be just there's not that comfort level. So – um, I, I, as much as I know this is the time of year people love to get involved in trade discussions, speculation, sure. this and that, <laughs> I would say as a general rule in our game, um, 
very rarely will you see elite players traded within the division. Let's uh, move it off baseball for our final question, Alex. You've been paying attention to the World Cup? I have a little much as probably I would like to just because I've been running around seeing our minor league affiliates. But I have, I mean, I haven't been able to really watch any games, but certainly try to follow some of the uh, scores and the results. Is it uh, a fair assumption to say you're cheering for Greece? Sure, yeah. And it's uh, it's nice to see them get to the second round. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge moment for them. So um, I'm sure, and obviously there's a huge Greek community in Montreal as well. So I can imagine. Um, actually, I don't even. I've lost touch with where the Greek community is right now. It used to be Park X. Yeah, they're still on up. and still on Park Avenue, and the whole city smelled like lamb after the win the other right, day. Right, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. You still got you got Park Avenue. You've got a lot of Sulaki places there, and uh, you got some nice, um, probably one of the best Greek Greek restaurants in North America, which is Milos. Oh, the uh, best, absolutely yeah, tremendous. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty amazing, and obviously in Toronto on the Danforth, everyone's going crazy, but. Right. I can only imagine what it's like in Greece. And um, I have some family that obviously loves soccer, my, my, my brother and my cousin and so on. So I know they're, they're pretty excited about it. Well, seeing the streets like that in Toronto on the Danforth, like you said, uh, could, must give you a little bit of a hint of what it could be like in October throughout the whole city. You know what? Um, I think the real um, what's really been telling is when you see what happened with the Leafs and what happened with the Raptors. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you guys saw it on the highlights. You know, they, they had the, right outside the Air Canada Centre. And, and I, I think... As much as people like to say Canada's a hockey nation or Toronto's a hockey city, Montreal's, I think most Canadian cities, when you have a winning team, and I think the Raptors showed that, it was just as rabid a fan base for the Raptors being in the playoffs as it was two years ago for the Leafs being in the playoffs. So I think Toronto and really all of Canada starved for a winner, um, and everyone would be so excited. And I, I don't really remember, I mean, I remember the World Series years in Montreal, but and we didn't really care. I would follow, but it didn't seem like the city cared back then. I do think, though, things have changed. The Internet, um, all sports channels, uh, sports packages, you can watch all the games. Just the exposure you have to sports right now, and especially to the Toronto Blue Jays, the Raptors, and so on, I think you'd see an even greater level of support that may have been there even in the early 90s because of uh, the media component, the access everybody has to the ball club. So um, I think what we saw, at least from a Toronto perspective, I think it would absolutely mirror or potentially even surpass um, – what what we saw uh, with, obviously, the Raptors and the Leafs. Yeah, I mean, and that Raptors thing was just spectacular to watch. And, and I'll tell you, you're absolutely right, Alex. There are fans here. I think they would care here now. There were 100,000 of them in the Olympic Stadium to watch the Jays play in March. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I think just, you know, the fact that um, whether it's, and it's small things, whether the fact that we're on TVA Sports mm-hmm. um, in French, um, again, whether the fact that everyone can get sports in, in Quebec, um, people watch the highlight shows, people can live stream on, on the internet, uh, all those things. And, and just like you said, there's a huge baseball fan base there. And even though they're not all Toronto Blue Jays fans, it's really uh, it's cut up, whether it's the Yankees, the Red, Red Sox, and so on. I do think slowly but surely, um, I believe at least, or I like to believe, and this may be naive, that as much as there will always be, um, there'll be that natural rivalry between Toronto and Montreal, I do think the fact that this being the only Canadian team the fact that we've tried to make inroads in, in Quebec, uh, whether it's coming out there on the caravan, bringing our players, having games, like you said, showing the support people had for the ball club when we played there. I do think some of those anti-Toronto, anti-Montreal walls are, are um, kind of starting to come down a little bit because we're not competing with any other, any other club. This is the only team in Canada, and I think everyone realizes that everyone should support it. Yeah, we'll leave the anti-Toronto stuff to hockey and to politics. Alex Anthopoulos, exactly. as always, it's a pleasure. All right, Dave, really enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Welcome back to CJAD. Dave Kaufman and Abby Goldberg here with you until 10 o'clock. It's a sad anniversary in, uh, in the world of sports. It's uh, the anniversary of one of the greatest speeches of all time uh, under one of the saddest of circumstances. And uh, we're about to play you a clip of... Uh, it's not a complete clip, Abby. Abby, I don't know if you knew this, but the entire Lou Gehrig speech was not recorded. Hmm. So the luckiest man on the face of the earth <laughs> part is the tail end. Hmm. There's so much more to the speech, and we'll uh, we'll play you something in the next segment with that, but we have a little piece of that right now, and we will play it for you right here on CJD. The news of Gehrig's illness stunned the country. And on July 4th, a huge, sad crowd packed Yankee Stadium to pay tribute to their beloved hero. Babe Ruth came back, and the two old teammates ended their long feud. Manager Joe McCarthy presented him with a trophy. At first, Gehrig was too moved to speak. consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That audio is from Ken Burns Baseball, a documentary that I uh, was so fond of growing up and that our next guest featured prominently in. John Thorne is the official historian of Major League Baseball. His most recent books are Baseball in the Garden of Eden, First Pitch, and Our Game, and he joins us now on CJD. Hello, John. Glad to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, my first question for you is, as I mentioned to my co-host, the speech was not recorded in its uh, in its entirety. Do you know why? Um, well, uh, games weren't recorded in their uh, weren't recorded in their entirety, either audio or video. So we are really dependent upon newsreel snippets and un- unidentified scissor wielders. Hmm. Uh, the, ver- the version of the Gary speech that comes down to us is the one that Gary Cooper recited in Pride of the Yankees. Oh, that's interesting. That's, uh, and, and, of course, there's so many little subtexts to that film. Uh, I, I can think of the uniform, Gary Cooper's uniform in Cooperstown, with the logos reversed because he, was, uh, he hit from the other side of the plate than Gehrig, so they had to flip all of the filming, right? Uh, well, that's the legend that, the entire, that all Cooper's actions were filmed in reverse, which would have necessitated uh, flipping the ads on the uh, outfield walls and uh, endless stuff. But, but no, only a few action shots were flipped. Cooper was not a natural ball player, but he was a, a physical presence. I mean, he was, he was a, a former cowboy, so he knew, he, he knew his way around uh, a field and moving his body in synchronization, in synchronization with events. 
but he couldn't throw, and his uh, swing looked uh, not much better than William Bendix's in the Babe Ruth story. Oh, boy, okay, and that's a movie that the Babe walked out of. Uh, I, there's so many things that I'm fascinated by with Lou Gehrig, and I think one of them is the fact that he was this huge star, he was beloved, and played in the shadow of the Babe. Well, the shadow of the Babe was precisely where uh, he uh, liked to be. He basked in the shadow. It was not a source of consternation or resentment for him in the least. The Babe was a a creature of the press, and, and he loved it, and he was a quote machine. Uh, Garrig was a shy fellow, by, by no means uh, inarticulate, but he had, no, uh, he had no appetite for the public life. Interesting. He was, um, I know there, there are stories about his, uh, his parents who were German immigrants, and he was a, a product of New York City. He went to Columbia, right? That's right. And was a football star there, I believe. I know there were stories about uh, him suffering concussions, and there, they, there were uh, people positing that that may have led to him developing ALS down the road. But he was a New York City kid, and he got to star for the Yankees. That must have been a real thing at the time. Well, it was tremendous. Um, you know, Hank Greenberg was also a, a New York City uh, kid, but there was no place for him at first base because of Gehrig. Wow. So uh, he had to find his fortunes in Detroit. But, uh, you know, Gehrig uh, was identified as a tremendous talent even in high school, so that there was a New York City high school all-star squad that traveled to Chicago to play the best of the Chicago high schoolers at Wrigley Field, I believe it was, rather than Comiskey Park, and Gary blasted a home run then. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was a legend, and uh, his career should have lasted so much longer than it did, and of course, uh, he got the news that he was sick, and he traveled to the, uh, to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and doctors tried to hide from him how bad it was, right? Yeah, he didn't know what he had when he went out to the Mayo Clinic. All he knew was that he had feelings of weakness and numbness, and that he could no longer do the job. He felt inklings of this, uh, this weakness in the 1938 season, which was a steep decline from his norm. But when he went out to Minneapolis, I don't even think he knew what a myotrophic lateral sclerosis was. Uh, I think, uh, well, I, and understandably so, it was not a very, I mean, it's still not a very common disease, but it was not a common at all when, when he got it, and that's why it's Lou Gehrig's disease right now. But that was, I guess, sometime between April and July, because uh, he stopped playing at the end of April, and then July 4th was this tribute, 75 years ago today, at Yankee Stadium. Let's go back there, John, and, and talk about the, the moment. He uh, was supposed to speak at the start and then was too overcome emotionally to speak, correct? That's right, and we have uh, photos of him um, weeping with his hand to his eyes. It took him a while to compose himself. Now, this speech uh, appears to have been something that he wrote with his wife maybe even the night before. Now, his wife, after he had returned from the Mayo Clinic, probably knew how dire the prognosis was, but Lou did not. He was under the impression that his bad break was that he could no longer play baseball and that he might have to have a limited uh, amount of physical activity going forward. But I don't think he knew that he had a death sentence. Do you think that people now realize the importance of him, that, that players in the game, I mean, I think back to 99 at the All-Star Game in Boston when, when all the players were surrounding Ted Williams and that wonderful moment. And crazy to think that Tony Gwynn's no longer with us because he's one of the ones sitting there with lighting up with a smile ear to ear. Do you think that there's that same reverence for Garrick? 
not among today's players, and you, you can't expect that because uh, he died before any of them were born by, by quite a long shot. But I think that Gehrig's legacy lives on in that what we think of as the Yankee way. Yeah. A quiet dignity um, as carried forward best by Derek Jeter dates to Gehrig. Gehrig gave the style to DiMaggio. DiMaggio, like Gehrig, was shy, withdrawn, not inclined to uh, seek out the press. Now, you could say they were both introverts and that because of media PR, we translate their, uh, their weakness, their personal weakness, into quiet dignity in class. But I'll leave that for for the psychologists. (laughs) Finishing up with MLB's official historian, John Thorne. You can also see him in the Ken Burns Baseball Series and read his books. Most recently, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, First Pitch and Our Game. Is there a player, would you say Jeter is the guy that you would compare to Gehrig of the modern day era? Uh, Yes, certainly not in his on-field performance, but in the way he carries himself. I mean, if you look at Gehrig's on-field performance, his numbers, uh, they're unreal and 117 RBIs in road games only in 1935, I think it was. Uh, that's in 77 home games. We've never seen anything like that. Um, so it's easy to, to think of Gehrig today as merely a medical case and a sad story, but he was one of the three best hitters in the history of baseball. And that, that's he get remembered on, on, in the American consciousness. Is it, it's for the speech, is it not? It's for the speech. It's for the movie, which is really pretty awful. but it it plucks the heartstrings, and that's what baseball movies do. That's kind of what baseball does, isn't it? That's a very good point. That's outstanding. That's that's why I've always loved baseball. That's why I'm hoping we get a team back here one day, and that's why I still follow it as closely as I ever have. Uh, John Thorne, thank you so much for your time tonight. My pleasure entirely. Real pleasure to speak with you. All the best. There he goes. It's uh, John Thorne. You can follow him on Twitter at Thorne underscore John. Avi, uh, did you know much about Garrick's story? Well, as you were just concluding that, I was just thinking how sadly I fall into that category of, of somebody who basically thinks of that speech. I was just looking at the stats before the segment, and I, I have to admit that I'm not, I was not at all thinking about him in terms of his greatness as a ball player, and that, that is a shame. That's for sure a shame. Welcome back. It's the Kaufman Show on CJD. Dave Kaufman and Avi Goldberg here with you tonight. You can follow Avi on Twitter at Avi Goldberg. I'm at the Kaufman Show. We just spoke with John Thorne, the official historian for Major League Baseball, about the 75th anniversary of Lou Gehrig's iconic Luckiest Man on the Face of the Earth speech, where he uh, was feted after having to retire from baseball. And as uh, John alluded, not knowing how sick he was. We're now going to play you uh, a snippet from last night's Keith Olbermann show on ESPN. If you don't know Keith Olbermann, he's one of the finest journalists around. He's uh, a little bit on the left, maybe, for some of you, but that's why they moved him back to sports. And uh, wow, does he do sports the right way. Here is Olbermann from last night. We begin with just how young he was. If Lou Gehrig had somehow been swept up from his final day as the first baseman of the New York Yankees, April 30th, 1939, and found himself the first baseman of the New York Yankees this past Tuesday, July 1st, 2014, he would have been the fifth youngest player in the Yankee starting lineup. In the last game he played, he was still just 35. He was Chase Utley's age, Adrian Beltre's age. He was eight days older that day than Cliff Lee is now. 
Cliff Lee, who just found out that he can make an injury rehabilitation start Sunday and then rejoin the Phillies. By Lou Gehrig's 37th birthday, Carlos Beltran's age, he could not leave his house. By his 38th, how old David Ortiz is now, Lou Gehrig had been dead for more than two weeks. And 75 July 4ths ago, he had just turned 36. He did not want a Lou Gehrig day. He did not want to go on the field. He did not want to address the fans. He did not want to risk revealing by word or by his halting walk or by his already deteriorating physique or by dropping one of the trophies they would give him that what the doctors revealed or what he said they had revealed, that he had a 50-50 chance of surviving, that that was a humane inaccuracy. He did not want to say that he had a disease and they did not know what caused it and they had no way to treat it and there was no way to keep it from killing him and that within months to take a picture of him working at his desk they would have to force his hand closed around a pencil and that within months of that he would not be able to raise his own head and so when on the 4th of July 1939 in front of 61,000 fans at Yankee Stadium the other speeches had all been made and the awards and gifts all handed out and the startled looks and gasps of all the players who saw just how thin and old he had already become had been muted and hidden, and it came time for Lou Gehrig to go to the microphone to speak. He did not move. The crowd was then told he would not address them. Technicians advanced to the microphones to remove the microphones, and then the Yankees manager, Joe McCarthy, put his arm on Lou Gehrig's back and leaned into him and said something. We will never know what. But instead of making his public goodbye, his goodbye to those fans, to his teammates, to baseball, to his family, to life, to us who followed him. Instead of making his public goodbye a silent, stoic, noble nod, Lou Gehrig moved slowly to the microphone and gave one of the greatest speeches in history, a speech about the blessings of life. Not a speech about defiance in the face of death, not a speech about courage, not a speech about religion, not a speech about never giving up, Rather, a muted, heartbreaking speech, but still somehow unmistakably a speech of gratitude. Gratitude for life, gratitude for people. We have all heard him say it. Actually, we've all heard him say only four sentences of it. But it is worth hearing in its entirety, even if somebody like me has to read the parts not preserved on film. It has been compared in simplicity, in resonance, in beauty, to the Gettysburg Address, it is coincidental, certainly, but in 1863, President Lincoln had spoken 272 words, more or less, and in 1939, Lou Gehrig would speak 276. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I have been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupert? Also, the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow, to have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins, then to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader, that smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today, Joe McCarthy. Sure, I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team that would give you your, give your right arm to beat and vice versa, 
sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you in squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. From a plaque at Yankee Stadium that says, To Lou Gehrig, We've been to the wars together, we took our foes as they came, and always you were the leader, and ever you played the game. Idol of cheering millions, records are yours by sheaves, iron of frame they hailed you, decked you with laurel leaves, but higher than that we hold you. We'd have known you the best, knowing the way you came through every human test. Let this be a silent token of lasting friendship's gleam, and all that we've left unspoken, your pals of the Yankee team. Listen up, kid, it's not what you think Stayed out too late, had a little too much to drink Walk home, cross the bridge, when the marquee shut down There's a reason that I love this town Nobody cares how much money you have If you've got enough to get in a cab There'll be drinks on the house if your house burns down There's a reason that I love this town I saw your band In the early days We all understand Why you moved away We'll hold a breath Shot the shit with miniature Tim. If he needs a tune, then I'll write one for him. We like the same books and we like the same sounds. There's a reason that I love this town. I played a show in Kelowna last year. Said, Pick it up, Joel. We're dying in here. Picture one hand clapping, then picture half that sound. There's a reason that I hate that town If you saw my band In the early days Then you understand Why we moved away Will you hold a grudge anyway Because it's fun Down in our soup, some French restaurant. I 